This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station. This is the third of a four-part series with education researcher and presenter Simon Brooks. We're talking about the idea of creating a culture of thinking in classrooms for better learning outcomes. In his work visiting schools, Simon gets to meet a lot of teachers, visit many classrooms, and witness firsthand the great work being done by teachers today. But like with anything, new ideas aren't always received that well. Or sometimes good work is taking place using different methods that bring about similar results. So how do you respond to people when you get a sense that they're just not as into something as much as you are? In this episode, Simon helps us to navigate such a situation, and then the conversation turns to practical ideas, such as turning frustration into curiosity when faced with barriers to learning and understanding. Although, sometimes that trick never works. And now... Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat! But that trick never works! This time for sure! Presto! Well, I'm getting close. And now it's time for another special feature. Simon, as it happens, you are the next special feature. <laughs> I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> yeah. I love that little uh, cartoon from uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. It takes me back to my uh, very younger years. But it's, I think it's pertinent because uh, Bullwinkle tries to uh, pull a rabbit out of the hat and that trick never works. So do you ever get to a school where you do this fantastic presentation and you think, oh, this is just really great and I, and I totally believe in it. And then you get someone put up their hand and say, yeah, but that trick never works. Mm. Do you ever get that response? I'm sure that people are thinking that on numerous occasions. And sometimes people have been brave enough to give voice to those types of ideas. <laughs> I actually, um, yeah, it's very rare that people are um, utterly vociferous in their condemnation of the ideas that I share. Well, that was very um, eloquently <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. um, but sometimes it's very clear that the ideas gel with more people, with some people more than others. So... Is that, do you think, because you've got people in very different disciplines reacting in different ways? So you might have someone say, well, look, you know, I'm a, I'm a mathematics teacher. Again, well, I don't know why maths always comes out first, but some, for some reason it always comes out reasonably quickly in education discussion. But let's say you've got a maths teacher who says, well, you know, yeah, we do a lot of thinking, but we do a lot of problem solving. We do a lot of working out with pen and paper. And, you know, that's all nice. But I don't need to ask a student what makes you say that because the numbers speak for themselves. Whereas you might get an English teacher, and that's with no disrespect to our maths friends. But then you might get an English teacher who might say, oh, yeah, we really have to think very deeply about the themes in the text. And uh, I can really see how this could be related. Is it a discipline thing? It's possible to argue that, and certainly some people do. I mean, I've had math teachers say, oh, this applies more to the humanities than the mathematics. And then I've had actually humanities teachers saying this perhaps applies more to maths and science than it does to my history classroom. Um, so it's actually quite interesting to see those different perspectives. I mean, if we dig into mathematics specifically, it's kind of interesting to look at some of the work that's coming out of Stanford University. Mm -hmm. So we know that cultures are thinking associated with Harvard University, but there is some amazing work that's coming from Joe Bowler, who's a researcher, a mathematics professor at Stanford University. 
she wrote a wonderful book called The Elephant in the Classroom, by the way. Which is, <laughs> well, there's only one. <laughs> well, there you are. It's a beautifully named book. And by the way, spoiler alert, the elephant in the classroom that she's referring to <laughs> is the belief that there are maths people and non-maths people. Oh, really? What, there's a difference? <laughs> well, there we are. And she, what she's sort of saying is that that belief that, that some people have when they say, I'm not a maths person, is actually a really damaging story that they've come to tell themselves over many years, um, and which is then becoming calcified as a really fixed mindset opinion mm. and is closed to the possibility of growth, really, as a mathematician. But her work on developing mathematical thinkers correlates so beautifully with cultures of thinking ideas. One of the things that Joe Bowler writes about is though, even in mathematics, though there might be one answer, so there could be a definitive right or wrong, usually there are still many different possibilities of how you can get to that answer. So in the same way that in a culture of thinking, and we've talked before about the understanding map in a culture of thinking, mm -hmm. so moves that we encourage students to make with their thinking in service of developing understanding. Mm -hmm. One of those moves is pressing for explanation and interpretation. Right. So in an art class, I can press for multiple interpretations of an artwork. I may not be able to press for multiple interpretations of a maths question, but I can press for multiple different possible methods. And Bowler, along with her team, have developed many specific tasks and processes designed to help students surface, value, and appreciate all of the many different methods we can use to solve mathematical problems. That's as much of a, a culture of thinking as anything I've heard of. So what you're telling me is that I can be a maths person. There's hope. Well, actually what Bowler is suggesting is that there's no such thing as a maths person. <laughs> that, that it's not something that you're born with or born not, but it's a disposition that you can develop, particularly if the right cultural forces are at play in the classroom. So if we're going to spin this back around to your original question, which in essence, you know, is how do we respond to the idea that this works for me, but doesn't work for somebody else? Well, thinking is at the heart of every faculty area, isn't it? Mm. Every endeavor. So it's about trying to help people understand that. My position, I guess, that I adopt as well when, when I'm working with any school, and if I come across any opposition and I'm hearing, oh, this won't work for us, the position I tend to inhabit is curiosity rather than frustration. So rather than allowing myself to become frustrated, that's easy to do, and start inhabiting this perspective of, but I know it works for mathematics or French or whatever it is where I'm meeting this barrier. Uh-huh. And then trying to sort of batter um, the oppositional individual into submission through the force of my own persuasive argument. <laughs> rather than inhabiting that position, I try to sit in a space of curiosity rather than frustration and ask myself, what is it that's leading to some of this oppositional thinking? You know, what's coming up for you here? What, bu what buttons is this pressing? Yeah, and what if I'm not naturally curious, though? So let's say I'm a student. Let's go back to the maths class. Let's say I'm a student in a maths class and I'm uh, suddenly coming across a topic that, look, I learned about the other day from one of our guests on the podcast, Steve Howard, mm. um, combinatorics. Uh, apparently, many students struggle with that because they fail to see the relevance of it or how it applies to life or how it has any sort of useful function. And so I guess 
curiosity would be um, a factor involved there. What if I just can't fire the curiosity? What if I can't just find the buttons to press that say curiosity and make me really want to know what's going on? Well, curiosity is an area of immense interest to me. Um, it's, in fact, I'm, my PhD studies are focused on exploring curiosity. Well, I was hoping that you'd give me a, 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 an, an insightful answer because of that very fact. Well, I shall try my very best. <laughs> but here's the thing. Whether or not human beings are born curious is perhaps to become sidelined from the main idea that I think is important here. And the main idea here is that curiosity is something that we can enculturate. So curiosity is something that we can forge. We can design learning experiences in such a way that cultivate curiosity. So hang on, the word enculturation, are you suggesting that there's a difference between enculturation and learning a skill? So can I learn the skill of being curious or do I become curious because the environment around me enculturates a sense of curiosity? Okay, so this word enculturation dates back to Project Zero work from the 1990s when Shari Tishman and David Perkins first started playing with this idea of enculturation. So enculturation is perhaps, is perhaps best captured by thinking about something that Vygotsky once wrote when Vygotsky said children grow into the intellectual life that surrounds them. So the theory of enculturation is if I want children to become curious... I have to immerse them in an intellectual and emotional environment where curiosity is at the forefront. And they have a positive experience of doing that, right? Now, curiosity, yes, there's a bunch of skills associated with being curious. But the other aspects of developing a disposition are sensitivity and inclination. In other words... I might know what to do to be curious, i.e. ask a lot of questions. But I might not be inclined to be that. But maybe I'm not inclined to do it. <laughs> and maybe I'm not sensitive to occasions where enacting that disposition is a good idea. So if we're going to help children develop the disposition to be anything, curious, analytical, skeptical, well, we need to help them develop the ability, but also increase their sensitivity an inclination to enact that disposition. So a practical example, and I'm going back to the person who put up their hand in your presentation and said, yeah, but that doesn't work around here. You might like to suggest to them so that if a, if a student asks them a question, as in um, how do I do this or what particular piece of equipment do I need to, do, uh, mm. to use to, to get this particular outcome, perhaps the a helpful response might be, I don't know, let's find out. Nobody ever climbed a ladder by being, by being pushed up from behind. <laughs> well, certainly I've never tried it. <laughs> They've got to want to climb that ladder, right? Yes, they do. So in my experience working with educators and schools, if we're going to institute any form of change, step one is just getting people to have a go at something so that they then feel the value of it and want to do more of it. So, for instance, if we're talking about curiosity, mm -hmm. there's a wonderful technique called the question formulation technique, which some of your listeners might want to look up. Um, this comes from a, an organization, and if, it, if you guys Google it, you'll find out more details that's not associated with Harvard. So it's an institute particularly associated with the question formulation technique. And in essence, what the question formulation technique is about is about exposing students to some form of stimulus that might provoke interest 
yeah. provoke curiosity, and then getting them to generate as many questions as they possibly can in response to it. There's a series of quite thought-provoking steps that students go through with the question formulation technique. One of them is talking about what the difference is between open and closed questions and turning open into closed and closed into open. But by the end of the question formulation technique, what happens is that students generate a series of questions which they then use to drive their inquiry. Now, here's the exciting thing, Colin, and I'm excited. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I can tell you're excited. I'm, I'm so curious. I've just gone silent thinking, what's he going to say next? Well, this is good. <laughs> so some of the teachers I've worked with on the question formulation technique have noticed this amazing thing that if they use the QFT, as it can be abbreviated to, enough, if they use it over and over again, well, it's a routine that encourages wondering and questioning. What they have observed is that even when they're not using the QFT, they're noticing that the children in their care are asking more questions, even outside the context of the routine that presses for it. That's fascinating. In other words, if we build opportunities over and over and over again for children to wonder and be curious, something about those opportunities rubs off into their dispositional way of being. They become wanderers, not just people who are sometimes asked to wonder. So can you give me an example of, of how a student might do that practically, as in, as in what kind of a reaction might they have? have? Have you seen this working? Can you give me an example of this actually working in a classroom? Yeah, so um, one of the classrooms that I observed was a high school English classroom where the question formulation technique was being used in response to a map, which is a representation of George Orwell's novel 1984. And what the, it's a particularly clever map in that if you rotate it through 90 degrees, the key that you read orientates you differently. So you can be looking at what's described as East Asia, which is one of the continents in Orwell's novel, and looking at it one way on the map says that East Asia is the age-old enemy of Oceania. But then when you orientate it the other way, it says it's the age-old ally. Mm -hmm. And that that shift takes place in one day. So this was a particularly powerful lesson because the stimulus was particularly thought-provoking and provocative. So when I observed this lesson and saw the teacher using this stimulus and, and generating questions, these children, I was looking at pieces of butcher's paper with 30, 40 questions yeah. that they were generating in response to their wondering that they were doing at this magnificent stimulus material and that's part of wondering as well right we need to present them with materials which provoke inquiry which present mystery which can't be quickly and easily explained away that that present gaps that fire inquiry and interest so what were the what were the expressions on the faces of the children what, like you've described what they wrote down and it's nice to it's nice to see stuff written on butcher's paper and that's got a really nice nostalgic feel to it what did their faces look like? What, did the, what were their personal reactions? Were they actually really engrossed in what they were doing? And, and could you see that? When you see curiosity like that, I think it's best manifested by the lean in. So these are, these are children all working in small groups, but leaning in over a piece of butcher's paper because they're so intrigued by what's being written down. And you know, when we can design learning experiences that result in that amount of joy and that amount of intrigue, and if the teachers trying these tools 
get that energy from it themselves, well, that goes a long way to answering your original question. You know, teachers who might be inclined to say, well, I'm not quite sure this is going to work for me. But when they try something practical and they see the joy and energy that comes from it, they're inclined to try it again. In the next episode, we look at developing what Simon calls habits of practice. In other words, if you think you'd like to change or modify some of the ways you teach or the way your classroom operates, then considering some new habits might be a good place to start. One example is the concept of slow looking. Yes, this comes from Shari Tishman's work from Harvard Project Zero. And I would really recommend that your listeners purchase and read her book, which unsurprisingly is called Slow Looking by Shari Tishman. (laughs) Would never have guessed. (laughs) It's a very slim little volume, so it's easily readable in, in a night. And it explores in depth this whole concept of slow looking and why we should encourage a culture of slow looking in our schools. One of the essential ideas behind slow looking speaks back to something we've talked about before, which is that it's an antidote to audience impressionism. It's an antidote to getting a quick view of something. Slow looking is the opposite to that. Slow looking is about taking the time to notice more than first meets the eye. If you'd like to hear more about developing new habits of practice, then make sure you join us for the next episode. And remember, you can subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app on the device of your choice, completely for free. And if you know a colleague that would benefit from these discussions with Simon, then please share them. This podcast is brought to you by Central, and you can visit us at the website central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.